Good morning. Welcome back to the Peer Support Podcast. In just a moment, we'll be joined by Dr. Hayden Duggan, and we'll be discussing child and adolescent psychology, which was rescheduled from last week um, because we had to move some things around um, based on what we were currently seeing. Um, He's going to address some of the apprehensions our membership has and give some tactics on discussing uh, difficult topics with our not only our spouses and family, but particularly our, our children. Keep your eyes out later today. Um, Chrissy Snyder, um, who's an EMT on the evening shift, will be uploading um, her first video. It'll have a YouTube link associated with the Boston EMS Peer Support YouTube channel. And this will be the first of its kind here. And we want to just take a moment to thank Chrissy for uh, undertaking this initiative and really just offering a lot of guidance to us in this specific topic. Um, at 1 p.m., we're going to have Superintendent Joe O'Hare on from Field Operations, and um, we're going to check in with our current status, how we're doing, the call volume we're seeing, um, any of the pitfalls we're finding, whether he's finding, and um, some recommendations on correcting it on how we're going to move forward. Tomorrow, keep your eyes out. Um, we'll be doing a podcast with Michelle Reed from Reed and O'Toole. Um, she's a family planning attorney who specializes in wills and healthcare proxies. And our intention is not to make this topic morbid, but to offer an opportunity for our membership that we know has been wearing on their minds and kind of offer some guidance into how you can move forward with really solidifying your affairs. Um, In light of current events, it's come to the forefront as a necessity that we hope we never need. So Hayden, welcome back, and uh, thank you for understanding that we had to reschedule this last week for a different topic that we kind of saw as more appropriate um, at the time. But today, um, our goal is to kind of focus on the kids, focus on the family, and focus on child adolescent psychology and how we can um, help our membership ease um, the apprehensions that are going on at home. So thanks. Welcome back. And we're always happy to hear from you. Oh, it's great to be here, Pat. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. So what do you think? How are you doing? <laughs> We're doing okay. I just, uh, uh, it's amazing how much um, people are coping with and what a great job they're doing in general. Um, anybody who says they have all the answers on how to deal with children and families, please run in the other direction because <laughs> nobody does. And it's you know, every time, you know, that old expression, man plans, God's laughs. Um, every time you set up a plan with adolescents or children, uh, either they will find a way around it or it turns out not to work. So plans are people interactive things, but we'll, we'll, you know, they can change. We'll talk about that today a little bit. Very timely subject, though, because we just had the announcement from the governor. Yeah, schools that, closed. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> schools closed. So if everybody was kind of holding on, just hoping, well, I can get through till May 4th, so then it'll be May 15th. We're screwed. So there's lots to talk about, and obviously if people want to, you know, uh, write in questions to, uh, to you, we'd be happy to. Let, let me just, uh, in, in the realm of full disclosure, say that, you know, we've got our thoughts from the on-site, which we'll share. You know, we work for you, um, and, uh, you know, what, whatever people want to talk about, we're happy to. Um, but we also beg, borrow, steal, plagiarize, take stuff from any place we can. As you know, in the in general, in the CISM and peer support movement, we all borrow each other's stuff. Right. Um, I just like to give attribution when I do that so that nobody thinks this comes from me. So 
I'll be talking about some of our stuff. We'll borrow some stuff from the CDC. We'll borrow some stuff from um, uh, Tommy Greenhall's website. We've got a website too. So it all, it's all, it all comes out in the wash. But uh, so I'll be using other people's material as well today, and I'll be sure to give them attribution. Overall, though, you know, basically, um, what we're dealing with now is something that's unprecedented in terms of the amount of stress on parents. So the first thing I would say is, uh, yes, we will talk about kids. We'll talk about different developmental stages. But the first thing is if we take care of the parents as much as we can, that's going to help a lot with taking care of the kids because right. the kids the kids are watching us like a hawk. So the same principles that we talked about last week in terms of just managing the stages of this crisis, reassurance uh, wherever we can and to be positive wherever we can in terms of treatments, vaccines, the future, the end point at least of this particular wave, normalizing reactions as much as we can, using activity as a key to recovery. It's not really a good time to sit around and just let all those bad thoughts come to the surface. We want to clear them off when we do. So a lot of families are doing a lot more activity outside and inside than they used to. And telling the truth, particularly with children, uh, you don't have to bludgeon them over the head with all of the different um, facts, but just when asked as much as possible, 99% anyway, we try to tell the truth and encouraging them to give it a voice. You know, to talk about it is to deal with it, but obviously not to force kids to talk about it. Some of the challenges we have with this situation, which is different, is... Um, we have blended families out there. We have a lot of second marriages or, or uh, you know, uh, kids that are dealing with visitation. So that could be problematic. Um, maybe the primary parent doesn't want uh, the children to come over for visitation because of uh, fear of what they might be exposed to. That's got to be worked through. Most people are working it through. I know that the state and the governor has supported visitation rights, but really it should be on a case-by-case basis in terms of everybody's comfort level. But I do think that where there is conflict, um, parents need to talk about that, and that's what we're here for. That's what the peer support team is for as well. Um, so visitation is a challenge. Blended families can be a challenge. And then grandparents. You know, kids are worried about their grandparents, and they are hearing that this particularly affects the elderly, and so they're worried more about them. And, um, you know, they may ask, you know, very, very straightforwardly, are, are grandpa and grandpa going to die? Um, and, you know, it's the same thing we, we do on the ambulance. You have to say we're, we're keeping them as safe as we can. We're doing the best we can. We're doing everything we can. But, you know, we don't want to pretend that this isn't potentially life-threatening. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to deal with, let alone... Um, when there is a loss in the family, which of course has happened, has happened within families within Boston EMS where they lose a loved one, um, then it becomes particularly hard because uh, the kids don't get a chance to say goodbye or even to see them. But again, giving it a voice is the, the basic way we deal with it. So just developmentally, you know, some general rough guidelines, and these are very rough, but even with infants, um, the stress level can can be communicated. You know, many, many years ago, um, a psychiatrist named Harry Stack Sullivan wrote, wrote a, a book on 
mother-child communication is something he calls syntactic communication. And there's a high level of sort of sensory motor empathy between mother and child. Not there isn't between father and child as well, but especially at the infant age or, you know, under one or two, and especially if somebody's nursing, the best thing we can do um, for uh, mothers dealing with infants at that age is to take care of the mother's stress and make sure that, you know, nursing or taking care of a one or a two-year-old is still as positive experience as possible and given all the stress that she's going through. So we really want to support moms, particularly during that period. For two to four-year-olds, two to five-year-olds, everything is, is, is play. And, you know, in terms of talking with them, and we, we will discuss that a little bit, but um, <laughs> they're a riot, even up to six or seven. Um, they like to play, and um, reaching them through drawings and play is really good, an activity both inside and outside. They're not big on sitting and talking about coronavirus. So all of a sudden, you could just may look up, look up at you and say something like, you know, am I going to die? And then after you give an answer and you're trying to think that one through and you're talking about it, all of a sudden they just turn and run away. Thank you. That's enough. (laughs) Their minds have gone on to something else. And you're left standing like, did I handle that right? Did I say the right thing? What do I say? Again, reassurance is is critical. But So don't be surprised if kids, when they're done, you know, they've heard your answer. Thank you. I'm done. I'm ready to go back to playing. Um, but it's unpredictable when they will just do something like that. When you get to latency age, you know, seven to nine, seven to 10, everything is normally other kids. And that's the age when kids start to do sleepovers. And that's the age where you have groups and cliques at school beginning. And that's where everything is talking to other friends. And now that's really difficult. So it's all got to be, you know, via Zoom or Google Duo. or But they're much more comfortable with those platforms than I am. So anything that can be done to encourage um, that, yeah, it's physical distancing, but not social, um, for them to keep up those networks um, and computer games and all the stuff that they do. uh, This is a generation that's instantly comfortable with those platforms, which, you know, some of us aren't. So... Seven to nine, seven to ten-year-olds particularly focus on other kids, and now that they can't go over their houses or they can't, you know, have um, you know sleepovers or whatever, uh, encouraging them to talk to their friends and keep up those social networks by computer um, or by virtual means is really important. When you hit the adolescent age, you know, anything from like thirteen or puberty on to fifteen, sixteen, it's a different ball game with kids. They're smart enough to know exactly what's going on. And they watch mom and dad like a hawk. And they definitely do follow things on the news. And you can't BS them because they, they've already heard what's out there. And anything you can do to help kids at that age feel useful. I mean, if you think, what did you want to be when you were 13? You wanted to be 15 or 16. <laughs> when you were 15 to 16, what did you want to be? You wanted to be 18. So generally with, with adolescents, um, I think it is good to have, uh, uh, you know, a serious talk with them. I think it is good to thank them for their contribution to the family. And it is good whenever possible to task them and ask them to help with things 
give them something to do, even if they groan and moan and bitch and complain, it's still better. Activity is the key to recovery, particularly at that age. And keeping them doing something to help the family system really makes them feel important because these are children of first responder families. And that's very different. Mm-hmm. There are other friends, you know, whom they will continue to talk to on Facebook and FaceTime or whatever. They don't, they don't have mummies and daddies that are going out the door, not knowing if they're going to come back. No, it's, it's a whole, even without COVID-19, it's a whole different experience for a kid to grow up in a two-parent family, often where both parents are first responders of one kind or another, um, or, or give hospital-based services. So we try to flip that anxiety around um, to talk about the pride that they can have in their families and their parents, and that years later when we talk about what this period has been like in their lives, they can talk with pride about what their parents did during that. And that's important for our kids who are growing up with this, with all the sacrifices they have to make to be able to have pride in what their parents do and the incredible risks that they take and the fact that mommy and daddy are out there helping people. There are lots of people who can stay home and kind of shelter in place and, and, um, don't have to go to work, not that they might not, not want to go to work, but but they, they can't. Uh, mommy and daddy don't have that choice. Right. They're out there helping people. And so, you know, it's isolating enough to be in emergency services. There was that famous study that Lynn Kennedy Ewing did years ago, um, master's level thesis for her degree out of the International Critical Infrastructure Stress Foundation, where she studied EMTs uh, uh, when they came on the job. And many of them had wide social networks, lots of friends who weren't in emergency services. They exercised regularly. They were fit. They didn't smoke. And they were in pretty good, healthy relationships. She looked at them five to eight years later. The only other people they talked to were first responders. And frankly, the only people they were most comfortable with were EMTs. And um, they weren't generally going to the gym as much. Uh, many of them were smoking. Uh, a lot of them were taking the long way home after the shift in terms of self-medication. And in general, they were more narrow in uh, you know, who they trusted mm-hmm. because they found out that that's just the way it is. Only another EMT or medic really understands what you do and what you go through. Well, if you think about it through the kids' eyes, it also can be isolating for them when you know they're with other kids to kind of explain what their mommy and daddy does. So now you multiply that times five when we're talking about COVID-19. So I think it's really good um, for them to be encouraged to be proud of what um, their parents do. But like that uh, doc at Mass General said, they found, I know we mentioned this last week, but that it was very helpful where possible for parents who are going to be on the job whatever shift they're working, to have a time that they tell their kids. And I know because there's a high call volume and, you know, 18 calls in in 10 hours, you may not even get back to the station. But to have a time, if possible, when they either text or call their kids to let them know they're okay. Because structure is always an antidote to crisis, and structure helps people feel a little better. So those are just some overall 
developmental thought. Um, in terms of just general stress management tips for dealing with children during the pandemic, um, you know, from uh, from the from Tommy's website, the same a lot of the stuff is on ours. Provide structure. Just as with adults, it's always important to have as structured an environment as you can, even at, at home during all this, to try to set a daily schedule and try to adhere to it. In terms of um, school, you know, for a long time in the public schools, they couldn't do any new curriculum. They were only allowed to do review of uh, curriculum that had already been taught. Now, as you know, Pat, I think after the union uh, management meetings, now they are teaching new curriculum. Um, for kids who went to private schools, particularly the Catholic schools, they jumped on this right away. And they were ready with curriculum to go and new material. And kids actually have had to go to school from 8 o'clock until 2. I think they've scaled it back to 12.30. So talk about structure. I mean, it was almost overly structured. And homework assignments were sent through uh, you know, virtual means. For public school kids, it has now started up. And now that they won't be going back, they are getting new curriculum material. Some of them are getting flex time where the material is, is um, put up on the website and then they don't have to do it between 8 o'clock and noon or whatever. They can do it whenever they want. But And then they're getting pass-fail um, instead of graded, whereas in the private schools they're getting graded. But right now, that structure is being provided, at least. So, you know, there is the educational structure to the day. Um, but, you know, most um, most families are playing, at least we when we talk to them, we're hearing that they are playing more board games than they used to. And they're trying not to have them sit in front of the phone or the tablet or the computer screen all day long. They do want them to go outside and burn off energy, but you got to follow social distancing guidelines. So as best as possible, people are trying to provide structure and more family activities. Um, in terms of letting kids express their emotions and their perceptions and positives, as well as fears, every kid has been impacted by this. And it's important to let them share their reactions and just normalize. Um, a co common mistake, you know, is to tell them just get over it or you shouldn't feel this way. Um, that's not going to work. So we have to acknowledge where they're at. The kids are extremely perceptive. Even, you know, four-year-olds, six-year-olds, they're well aware of what's going on. They may not understand all of it, but they're well aware. And it's impacting them. So when it comes to the media, these are just general guidelines, but we do try to limit exposure to the media. And they're going to hear it. And they're going to see it, but everybody's getting bombarded with it. So as best as possible, we try to limit the exposure. And just in general with information, every family has to find a balance between answering questions well enough without letting, um, you know, anxiety take over. And this is on our website about how to talk to children about the coronavirus. Um, that's always a double-edged sword, the issue of information. Last week we said information and communication were antidotes to anxiety and fear. And each family has to strike a balance between how much information is too much and how is how much is too little. 
So, you know, obviously kids need to know, if they ask you directly, can I die from this? It's important to be able to say, well, you know, 80% or 8 out of 10 people who get it um, are doing okay with it and get a mild case of it. But there are cases where it has been very serious. And yes, we have lost some people. And if they ask more, I think it is important to say that it is mostly in the elderly range that we worry most, which is going to lead into that worry about grandparents. And we mentioned probably the best way to deal with that is to say that we're keeping them as safe as, as we can. The problem with talking too much about it is that kids have very elaborate imaginations. And if, if we talk too much about it, it may, um, make it more alarming for them than necessary. So, you know, children need to know enough to understand about it. And then if they want to go off and play, Sorry, hey, when we lost you there for a second, uh, if they wanted to go off and play. Yeah, I, I think that's fine, but we should talk frankly about, okay, so how do you answer all these questions? Um, and again, this comes from the stuff on our website about how to talk to children about the coronavirus. But, you know, if they ask, what, what, what is it or what's new about it? Um, I think we can tell them it's the kind of germ that makes people feel sick. And, you know, you can talk about the flu because they, they may have a classmate or somebody they know who's who's had the flu, and you can say it can be a lot like getting the flu. Um, some people feel just a little sick. Some people get a cough and a fever, and sometimes the cough can make it hard to breathe easily. Um, you know, speaking at a level that they can understand. Uh, if they ask how you catch this virus, I think it's okay to tell them the virus spreads like the flu or cold or a cough, and talk about sneezing. Um, that it's, it's, it's important to pay attention to sneezing and sneezing into your elbow and that when the germs go into the air, uh, it's okay to tell them it can travel up to six feet. This is only if they're interested or they want to know. Otherwise, they wouldn't go into it. But, you know, you can say it's probably further than you are tall. And that's why it's important to stand six feet apart from people other than your family. You don't want to breathe in the air with germs. Um, and then I think, you know, we got to talk about hand washing and surfaces and say that you know, a healthy person can get these germs on their hands and that that can happen from touching somebody who's sick or touching surfaces where the germs landed. So don't be surprised if you see mommy and daddy asking you to wash your hands as much as you can with soap and water and to use the hand sanitizer afterwards. And if you see mommy and daddy wiping off surfaces a lot, you know, that's something that they can help with. And we have to remind them not to touch their mouth or their eyes. Um, you don't want it to get in your body and, you know, in your nose. Those are places where germs can get inside the body. And just remind them that this is what kids can do to try to stay as healthy as they can. Um, and remember to sneeze into your elbow. This keeps the germs from traveling and making other people sick. And when you Wash your hands. You know, sometimes I know everybody knows this, but parents can help by singing the ABCs or Happy Birthday and just telling the kids that, you know, you want about up to 20 seconds if possible. Um, and then we get into the whole issue of masks. Uh, and that gets a little tricky because earlier on, we were saying, well, masks should just be for people who are sick 
so that they don't infect other people. And for doctors and nurses, you don't have to wear a mask. But now um, they're going to see a lot more people wearing masks. And, of course, it's been the order to wear the mask anytime we go out. So, again, it's just to explain to them that it's just precautionary. And they're definitely going to ask about, you know, can you die from the new coronavirus? And, again, I think it's important to reassure them that most people who have caught the virus have not died, just like with the flu. And that doctors are working really hard to keep an eye on anyone who is feeling sick. Um, but that, yes. You have to be truthful. We have lost some people. But, again, we want to encourage activity and to have them keep doing what they love to do as much as they can in their homes and playing outside and not let worries about the virus boss them around. You know, if you're doing what you love to do while you're practicing healthy behaviors like sneezing into your elbow and washing your hands after you go to the bathroom, you're showing the virus and the worries who is boss instead. And we try to model calmness about the, the, the virus um, when we talk to kids as much as possible, even though we may not feel that calmness. And that goes to limiting news exposure um, as much as we can because the, the news stories can be worded strongly. Right. And that's scaring for, scary for kids. <laughs> now, in terms of reassurance, we always talk about reassurance being really important for kids and being as positive as we can be. Um, You can go too far with reassurance um, if they are constantly asking for reassurance, repeating the same questions they've already asked and not getting reassured and getting more distressed, then you probably need to go up a step and think about maybe getting some virtual counseling support um, and and maybe getting a little bit of professional help. If practicing healthy behaviors and playing and doing family activities and keeping a structure to the day as much as you can and for the older kids doing schoolwork is not um, having an effect on reducing anxiety, then we probably need to go the next step. But basically... Anything we do, um, it depends on how, how the family works and, and nothing works perfectly. Uh, and the main thing, I think, is just to stay close to kids and reduce their anxiety as much as we can by modeling calmness ourselves. Mm-hmm. Perfect. It's interesting to see that, you know, I, I remember reading a study, and I can't remember whether it was children of 9-11 um, victims or if it was... Um, from a different terrorist attack, but they were showing the effects of secondary PTSD on yeah. children of responders. Yeah. And it's interesting how that, you know, we talk about a family dynamic being different when one or two members of the household are in public safety um, right. and how it affects the children and how they may have a difficult time relating to, I don't know, quote unquote, normal families. But right. I think this is certainly enhanced or potentially can enhance the anxiety of kids when your your family members or your parents are not normal. Absolutely. And that's where, again, we try to turn that around and say, right, they're not normal. Your parents are not normal. They're extraordinary. And while everybody else um, can worry about their own personal safety, 
mommy and daddy have to be out there worrying about everybody's personal safety. And you can be proud of them for doing that. Um, but yeah, it can be isolating for the kids as well. You know, particularly that, that age range from like just on the edge of the play range, maybe five to eight or even nine, loves to draw. And if you saw from those studies um, of secondary um, traumatization, vicarious traumatization for kids at 9-11, a lot of the work that was done was not just play theory, but drawing and having kids express what they were worried about or what they imagined it to be like out there for mommy and daddy by drawing it. Interesting. I do know <clears throat> that that has certainly been um, a, a fear of a lot of our folks, whether they're dual responder households or single households or visitation households, as you had mentioned earlier. And um, the, one of the bigger things that recently arose was, you know, for our members that are um, out ill and the, the fear they have of, mm-hmm. um, you know, exposing their children or, you know, not leaving their children or getting childcare coverage or having another, having your spouse mm-hmm. um, do it alone. And there's a lot of angst kind of, um, of almost betrayal. They're feeling like they're betraying um, their home life for their professional life. So it, it has kind of created an interesting dynamic um, between spouses, between uh, parents and children. And it's kind of just really a, a whirlwind potentially for a lot of our guys that are in that situation. There's, I'm not expecting you to have an answer to that, but it's certainly um, a hurdle that we're seeing. That is a great point. And you're getting that, you know, straight from the field, from the people you work with. We are hearing that too. Uh, I do have an answer for it, although it's the same old answer, but it works. Depression, anxiety, trauma, just general worry about this stuff is one of the few things the research can show actually benefit from talking. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of things talking doesn't necessarily help, but giving a voice to that resentment or that betrayal is absolutely crucial. And as you know, we have members of service who, who are who have chosen to stay in hotels provided for them rather than run the risk of bringing it home to their families. And that's another kind of aching, wrenching separation that has to be dealt with. And especially if they are afraid of, of maybe having had a positive exposure. So yes, that's gotta be, it's gotta be given a voice. It, it just does emotional and physical harm to keep that inside. But giving it a voice to whom? I mean, sometimes it's hard to do stress decon at home. Mm-hmm. You know, you, when you come off uh, having dealt with what they're seeing and feeling and smelling and touching and having to absorb, and the mind's taking a snapshot of all that stuff, and just come home and say, hi, you know, daddy's here, or mommy's here, and just like nothing had happened, that's not going to work. It's even more important for us to be able to um, at least express what what we've been through before we just come home, and uh, then we have to decom. The kids might come running up for a hug, and you can't do that. You know, you got to first go through all of your decom procedures in your own home right. before you can give your, even give your family a hug. All that stuff's got to be talked about. Right. And I think what makes it all the more difficult is that there is no 
beginning and end. There's no, there's no, there's nothing to look forward to. We can't reassure by saying June 1st, this will we'll all be back to normal. It's summer vacation, whatever it may be. Right. That those, those securities don't exist. And that's true. And, you know, just like we said, they're aware of the media. And even if you try to shield them from that, you can't guarantee that the news might not be on or it might be just um, you're watching a program between 11 and 12 and the 12 o'clock headlines come on before you can switch it or turn it off. They hear uh, the head of the CDC saying, well, it's going to come back next winter. Right. And because of the combination of influenza A and uh, COVID-19, is going to be worse. The kids just are walking through the room. Don't think they don't hear that. Right. That might not say anything at that moment. Um, but, you know, a couple hours later, even the next day, that's when they look up at you and, and they say, is that true? So they are. It's impossible to completely shield them from it. And that's where, without being untruthful, I think, you know, we, it's our responsibility to put a positive aspect to that. When every, with every crisis and even every tragedy, we can usually find some lesson learned or something that we can point to as a positive and so for, as an opportunity. So for this, I think we can say, Pat, that even if there is no ending, at least for who knows, even a couple of years, so we get a handle all this or it runs its cycle uh, to dealing with COVID-19, we can say, looking at other countries, that there is a plane, there's a plateau, and there's a leveling off, right. and then there's a reduction. There is and an end. Some, we just don't know when the date is. Right. And it, yes, it, it's going to come back. That's probably uh, given. But there will be a period of normality returning when we have to use that and this time to prepare ourselves for the next wave. And I think we can say to kids, you can help with this. And we do need to stock up. And we do need, you can say to them, now we know all about hand-washing procedures and sneezing and coughing and uh, gloves and masks and uh, surfaces and all these things. We know about these things now, so we're going to be much better prepared. And I think we can say to them that by what, 12, 16 months is a prediction, we will have a vaccine. And it may not be in time to prevent that next wave, but it's probably going to appear right during it. And I think we can say to them that just as with other illnesses, particularly those that attack the lungs and breathing, we have a lot of treatments that are being explored and worked on now. So, Yes, it's awful and it's scary. We have to acknowledge that, but we also have to say to them, you know, mommy and daddy are in the medical field and there's a huge amount of helping stuff that's going to benefit you as kids down the line. Right. And I think that as we, as we continue to experience this, it's, you know, and talking to you and we talked to you quite a bit offline, um, from a peer support perspective, it's, it's very important for us to be looking not at next week and not at, two weeks from now or next quarter, it's months. And, right. you know, I fear that let's just give an arbitrary date to it. This were to end in June or, you know, June right, 15th. Right, right, right. And that's all well and good. But the problem is, is June is a really tough time. The summer months are a tough time in public safety to get right. discretionary time, time to spend, you know, on vacation with your family. And there's a lot of our, you know, younger members or newer members 
that don't have a whole lot of discretionary time. And it's, it's important right. to point out that most of them or a lot of them have stepped up and kicked in their vacation weeks, you know, that weren't yeah. prime picks to begin with. So you're looking at a membership that, you know, is kind of staring down the barrel of, I'm not going to take a vacation this year. And I think it's important yeah. that we guide, you know, the leadership and just put, give our input of, we need to reevaluate the summer months or whatever months that we're in the clear of this where things are loosening up because, you know, we need to encourage these people to take time offline. I know it's, it's, it's an important uh, topic to the chief that he's very mm -hmm. much in tune to R&R um, &R and people getting time off even during this. Um, so I think, you know, we need to be looking months down the line of how do we put this all back together? How do we normalize the houses? How do we stabilize the environment? Yeah. but also take care of the membership. Uh, that's, that's an excellent point, a, a great point. And, you know, if we look at it, you know, like one gigantic hazmat, time, distance, shielding, well, whenever we get time off, we have to get it as far off as possible and reduce exposure as much as possible. Right. And I think I, I have no doubt that, you know, we'll get through this, we'll come out the other end and the membership will be able to put itself back together with our help, with help from other resources. Not that we're, I don't believe that we're going to be shattered or broken or oh, irreparable. No. Um, but I do believe that there, we need to give a voice to this and you need to acknowledge that you just went through months of, you know, just increased call volume, increased workload, changes in work environments in the union and management and the membership has really all stepped up to the plate and addressed mm -hmm. this. But we need to acknowledge that there will be fallout, you know, absolutely. No way around Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, there's just, there's just no, I don't, I don't believe there'd be a way around it. It's just going to be impacted at different right. levels. Right. And if we, if we expect that, then, you know, we can gear up to make sure we have the resources just to hear it. The more people talk about what they're going through, the better, but it needs to be in somewhat of a structured way so that they're talking with people who are, are able to sit down and listen and give them the kind of support that they uh, that they need. Sometimes talking with family is helpful, but other times <laughs> it's not so helpful. You can't tell family what you've been seeing out there right. um, for 8, 10, 12, or double, however many hours you've been working. And it needs to be in a place where it's our people feel comfortable talking about it. So peer support... Um, you know, obviously the work that we all do together is critically important. But I would say, if you look at what's happening in terms of all the work you're doing and when you just spot check people and talk to them, like I saw the TV this morning, Good Morning America had a great piece on Boss DMS. It was, it was fabulous, I thought. Very down to earth, very straightforward, really good clips from talking with street EMTs out there. You know, it, it helps in any way to like oil to the surface of water, bring the stuff up and clear it off. And it's not a one shot deal. It's got to be done on an ongoing basis. But in the recovery movement, we talk about strong in the broken places. And as you say, Pat, people are going to come out of this having really taken some heavy body blows, but in some ways they're going to come out of this like a piece of tempered steel as well, because they will, they, it won't be the element of surprise anymore. Right. We have another wave where we have to deal with this. It'll be this again. And 
Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're, we'll gear up to it and we know what to do and we know how to fight it. So preparation always reduces the element of surprise and reduces the stress. Right. I think if there's just a message, and I know that some family members that are non-service members do listen into this, I think that the fear that's currently at home or the turmoil that's currently at home has a very strong possibility in the coming months to turn into um, uh, almost animosity of what do you mean you can't get July, uh, a week in July or a week in August, you gave up February vacation. I think the message needs to be that that's not your member's fault. You know, and there are, there are other, um, there are other forces that are at work. And I think that we will be able to mitigate a lot of it, but I don't want this to transition into um, just complete animosity at home um, because we need to real, we need to, we need to give it a voice. You know, we need to say, this is the reality. You did give up the vacation and that is awesome, but that doesn't necessarily mean July 4th is yours, you know? Wow. Yeah. It's something that, you know, just, we'll keep it on the radar. And we just want, you know, I don't want people to at home to understand to to think that it's their member not wanting to be there. Yeah, that's really important, and it may be important for peer support or for us um, on the counseling end to host some joint sessions with member of service and spouse or family, which we can absolutely do, mm-hmm. um, just to talk that through. Hayden, I can't thank you enough, as always, um, to give us this bit on child and adolescent psychology. is something that I know um, has been a, a topic that the membership wanted addressed and wanted some guidance on. And I know we could go on for hours, um, you know, not my particular forte, um, but certainly you as a father and a lot of our members having children. It's, it's beneficial. It's beneficial that, you know, we, we get this out there. And it's also, I think, beneficial for our member spouses at home to kind of give them some insight as to what's currently going on and how it's affecting not only their loved one, but the home life. It's normal. It's not just them. I appreciate being asked, um, Pat, and don't, don't take me um, as any expert on their own families or their own kids. The experts are the parents themselves and every situation is definitely different, but we do know, again, those sort of general guidelines, the best way we can help the children is to take as much stress off the parents as we can and to give them every opportunity to talk about it. And then we do find with kids, you know, under two, that empathy, that sensory motor communication um, can work the other way too. And that stress can get communicated. So we want to support those, those uh, parents with young children as much as possible. Again, when you get to the sort of, four to six, four to seven-year-old play is fabulous. They often, if you just sit and talk with them and play, do games or blocks or whatever the stuff they like to use, um, they will sometimes just talk about or through the play itself, the play can become a metaphor for the stuff that they're anxious about. But then when you get to the seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old, and normally everything is focused on other kids. So we have to try to compensate for that. And again, with teenagers, um, they may not be interested in talking about it. I didn't mean to imply that all teenagers are. But there are definitely teenagers that have an interest in mom and dad's work and respect it or know that it's 
it's a gutsy thing that they do out there and that's serving the public. And where possible, whenever you can include an adolescent, you know, it makes them feel ennobled. It gives them a role as opposed to just being shut out. It's important also that our membership understand and knows um, for those of you that are struggling at home with childcare or single parents or uh, both parents in the workforce currently as essential personnel, um, Deputy Lee Alexander is the person um, in the command staff that's taken the lead, not only on alternate housing, but childcare. My understanding is there is childcare being um, uh, provided through the city, but it is limited. It has limitations and Lee is far better um, versed on that topic. So if you, if you have questions, feel free to reach out to her or email her or email us and we'll get you in contact with Lee. But the resources are there. I'm not sure how robust they are, but they have been stood up for um, essential personnel. So Hayden, thank you again. We'll talk to you next Wednesday. It's a pleasure. Our normal thank scheduled date at noontime. Sounds great, man. Thank All you. All right, brother. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be thinking of you. All right, thanks. Bye. Take care.